Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Erica. I'm your editor, Bryce. And I'm your other host, Abby. Welcome to part three of our Ted Bundy series. Today, we're going to cover the capture of Ted Bundy. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. In the early hours of August 16, 1975, Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward attempts to pull over somebody in a Volkswagen Beetle. The car turns off their lights and tries to lose the officer. He goes through a couple stop signs and tries to avoid capture, but eventually pulls over. Inside the vehicle, the passenger side seat was missing, and there was also a lot of items in the car that were a little suspicious. An ice pick, gloves, rope, a mask, amongst other things. And the person in the car was arrested for suspicion of burglary. So are those not normal things to have in the back of your car? I guess it just depends on your occupation. As Erica goes to the back of her car to empty it. Something else notable about the man that was apprehended and the vehicle he was apprehended in is that it matched the descriptions that Carol DeRanch had given about her abductor that happened a year prior. If you guys listened to part two of the series, uh, Erica gives you Carol DeRanch's story, but basically she was lured into Ted Bundy's car, but was able to escape and tell the police about her attack. After they had this man in custody, they were able to identify him as Ted Bundy. They brought Carol in and she was able to pick Ted out of a lineup and he was charged with the aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault of Carol DeRanche. On March 1st, 1976, he was found guilty and received a 1 to 15 year jail sentence in Utah State Prison. While Ted Bundy was in jail for the abduction of Carol, investigators from multiple states were piecing together evidence and starting to connect Ted to more crimes specifically linking him to the murder of Karen Campbell in early of 1975. They officially charged Ted with this murder and transferred him to Aspen, Colorado to await his trial. Something that I think a lot of people who know a little bit about Ted Bundy know is that he served as his own lawyer in his trials. Ted had gone to school for a degree in law, and so he kind of had an idea or so he thought he had a good idea of how it worked and wanted to represent himself. Because of this, he was able to appear in court without any cuffs or restraints. And he was able to move freely from the courtroom to the law library inside the Pitkin County Courthouse. And on June 7th, 1977, he was at the courthouse for a preliminary hearing and was left alone in this law library. The officer who was kind of following him around was outside the door with the door shut. He kind of thought, nothing's going to happen. We're on the second floor. But Ted took this opportunity and actually jumped out the window 25 feet down and took off. He had planned and had a spare change of clothes under his courtroom outfit, which I assume was just like a suit. And it was 10 minutes before anybody even knew he was gone. FBI started to put out warrants and pictures and 
started looking for him everywhere, but he was nowhere to be found. They even offered a $100,000 reward for his capture. After Ted jumped from the window, he took off to the nearby mountains and broke into a cabin for supplies, but quickly ran out and had to come back down to Aspen, and he eventually stole a car and took off. But a couple days later, and by a couple days, I saw anywhere from five to eight days, so we'll just go with a couple up to a week. Police saw a car weaving in and out of a lane and pulled him over, and it ended up being Ted Bundy, and he was taken back into custody. And I think it's so weird that he keeps trying to evade police, but isn't following basic traffic laws. That's what I was going to say. If I was trying to evade the police, I would, you know, drive carefully or take a taxi. Not go in and out of lanes. I don't know. He just seems like he was missing something here. So with him back in custody, he was also charged with escape, burglary, and felony theft on top of his first degree murder charge. In December of 1977, Ted Bundy is now in a prison in Colorado and was just waiting to plot his next escape. His cell was located directly beneath some living quarters of the prison's chief jailer, and the two rooms were only separated by a small crawl space, which this was something that was kind of news to me. I didn't realize that people who worked in the prison or certain levels of it would have living quarters in there. So I wonder if they, maybe that's because they work there for like days on end. So they had their own little like apartment or like dorm room type thing. Have you guys ever heard of that? No, I have only visited one prison though. And it wasn't something that was ever mentioned about the guards that live there. And it's not something that I've ever come across in other research. I wonder if that was just a thing of the time maybe, because I know one person that does work as a jailer I don't think he's ever mentioned having to live there or living any amount of time there. So could be based on the size of the prison or where or the time. That's kind of what I was wondering. During this time there, Bundy had managed to get his hands on a hacksaw. And during times where his cellmates were out for either exercise or showering or working, he was cutting a hole in the ceiling of his cell. Bundy had also been starving himself to drop weight so that he could fit through a smaller hole. And he had sewed away a small amount of money inside the prison that had been smuggled into him by his current girlfriend, Carol Ann Boone. And I'm going to tell you guys a little bit more about her later on, but remember that name. And I think people who know the story kind of know her for a reason. Bundy piled some books under his blanket in his bed to make it look like he was in it and at night climbed through the hole in the ceiling and swapped them for some of the normal civilian quote unquote clothes from the living quarters and just walked out of the jail's front doors pretending to just be, I don't know, a visitor or something, which I didn't understand either because if he was supposed to be in bed, you wouldn't think there'd be people just walking around there. Well, yeah, I agree. It's very weird, especially if he was supposed to be in bed. But I also feel like he was just always so confident in himself that he probably just carried himself just the right way that people were like, oh, he knows what he's doing and he's supposed to be leaving because he's a visitor. That is something we hear a lot about him is how charming and personable he was and that if you kind of ran into him, you would just trust him, I guess, is a word I would go with. I mean, that's how he abducted a lot of his victims is he kind of like gave them a talk and lured them away into either into his car or some obscure place or location. I also think it's super weird, though, that he was able to walk out of there claiming to be a visitor because when you visit a prison, they give you like a badge, like a visitor's badge. Like, you don't just 
it just seems weird that he was able to just walk out without like stopping at a desk to say like oh this is me like here's my visitor badge back like this whole process because they're not easy they're not meant to be easy to break out of or for you just to walk out the front door i do wonder maybe he grabbed something from the living quarters that aided his escape i didn't find a lot of details on that part of it but i'm guessing that played into it a little bit as well well it's like the phrase walk in like you own the place so if you're just anywhere and you see say someone walk by with a with a ladder and a vest on like are you gonna question why they're there just assume maybe they're there to go do some repair or something so he could have who knows he could have grabbed something and looked enough out of place that you didn't question him being there Of course, the FBI got involved again and started putting out wanted posters and information about him and actually brought in insight from the behavioral analysis unit, which I feel like we hear about a lot nowadays. And I know you guys have heard me talk about criminal minds more than I need to, so I won't go into detail. I'm just going to mention it. And Ted Bundy was added to the 10 most wanted fugitives list on February 10th, 1978 which I have his flyer and we will absolutely post that on our social media. Ted Bundy was able to get on a plane from Colorado to Chicago and got on a train and then stole some vehicles and eventually ended up in Tallahassee, Florida. But this is just another insane thing to me that he was able to go through all these like highly transported places and nobody recognized him or saw him or anything. I mean, I'll admit, I don't pay very much attention to other people. And thinking about all of the most wanted people right now and any missing people, pictures that have been put out, I don't remember the faces of any of them. I don't, I just don't really take the time to look at them and remember them. And, you know, maybe that's just personally me, but I feel like the average person doesn't remember those very much and also isn't looking for them very much, especially if like it's supposed to be happening states away. I agree with that somewhat. I do wonder though, because he was such a like highly publicized criminal because of his prior escape and all of his crimes. I'm just surprised in like somewhere as populated as an international airport where there are supposed to be officers and people around that no one noticed him. However, I don't actually know if back then the airports had quite as many officers or anything. I know obviously after... 9-11 it yeah. became more intense. I mean but. that's when like all the TSA really got involved and all that so maybe they probably didn't care too much on a person to person basis as far as like what people look like as long as you're not bringing in weapons or anything dumb. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee our go to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee and you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15 owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Well, like I said, he had made his way down to Florida And on January 15th, 1978, around 3 a.m. in the morning, he entered the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. He'd come in with a piece of firewood from outside and attacked Margaret Bowman and strangled her with a nylon stocking and then moved on into Lisa Levy's room where he beat her, strangled her, bit her and sexually assaulted her with a bottle of hairspray. 
He then moved on to attack Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler, who ended up surviving the injuries, but it was pretty graphic. And I know that they likely did not ever heal from that mentally. I actually found a quote from Kathy Kleiner when I was doing my research on victims. And she was talking about the experience that she had and being one of the victims that did survive Ted Bunny's attacks. And she said, quote, it made me stronger and it gave me more to live for. And it taught me nobody's going to put me down, end quote. And I think it's really cool to see somebody being able to turn a horrific situation into something good and finding like strength in that. Around this time when the attacks happened, Nita Neary, who was another sorority sister that lived in the house, came home and noticed that the front door was open. And when she went inside, she heard someone running and going towards the stairway. And she hid in the doorway and watched as a man wearing a blue cap and carrying a log took off out of the house, which she later identified as Ted Bundy. Ted then made his way about four or five blocks away from the sorority house to a duplex and broke into 21-year-old Cheryl Thomas's home and attacked her as well. However, her neighbors heard a loud noise and some weird sounds and called her in her no answer and then quickly called 911 and the police arrived, which had scared Ted off at this point and they found Cheryl Thomas on the floor and she had been attacked pretty bad. Ted Bunny had entered Cheryl Thomas's home through her kitchen window and hit her with the same log that was used at the Chi Omega house just a short amount of time prior. When he attacked her, she was asleep, so she was unable to actually identify Ted later on. But within her home, they found a knotted pair of pantyhose that had holes cut into it, making it into a mask. Her quote that I found on the attack was, quote, I can't remember being attacked at all. To wake up in a room that you don't recognize was quite baffling, and they didn't want to describe right away how I was hurt, but my mother told me I was very upset every time a male nurse came into my room. Why did Ted Bundy choose me? I still have no idea why. I can't remember it happening to me, end quote. So from what I've gathered, listening to her interviews and stuff, is that she might have passed out right away because he just hit her while she was asleep. And she doesn't remember really any of it until she wakes up in the hospital. Cheryl Thomas suffered permanent deafness from the attack, and it also put an end to her dance career, which I think she was actually going to school for. It's very interesting to me, too, that all of a sudden Ted went on this spree where he attacked so many women in such a short amount of time. Like the Chi Omega and Cheryl Thomas attacks all happened within hour, two hours of each other. And I wonder what it was that triggered that. Maybe he just saw it as like a way to fulfill his sick fantasies. And so he decided that he would just use those last hours to attack as many people as he could. I think a lot of it just points to Ted Bundy's psyche and kind of where his head was at, which we've kind of brushed on already a little bit, but we are going to talk about a psych eval done on him later on for you guys. A little under a month later, on February 9th, 1978, Ted attacked again. He abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from her school in Lake City, Florida. Kimberly was a seventh grader and was supposed to meet up with one of her friends 
before going to class in the middle of a school day and she never showed up, which was weird because they're only in middle school. It's not really like a lot of middle schoolers cut class. And she was also described as like a sweet, shy girl who didn't break the rules. And her friend immediately told a teacher, told somebody, and they notified the Lake City police and started a search for Kimberly. The search turned up nothing until about two months later in April of 1978, when her body was found about 30 miles away from the school in a shed in a wooded area behind a state park nearby. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten before being strangled. On February 15th, around 1 a.m., so this would have been six days after the abduction of Kimberly, a police officer in Pensacola saw a orange Volkswagen Beetle and noticed the plates on it and saw that it had been reported stolen. So he pulls them over. When the officer pulled the vehicle over, he saw a man in it, but didn't know who he was. And the man would not give his identity. The officer took him into custody and soon after that realized that it was Ted Bundy. Which this is another thing that just like amazes me about Ted Bundy is that if he's trying to not get caught, why is he doing things that are attracting attention? Like he had a Volkswagen Beetle before. Why would he steal another one? Doesn't that seem weird? That is the question of the day. That's very confusing. I don't know if he somehow saw it like as a comfort thing because he was so used to that vehicle or maybe it was like Bryce and he just really liked his car. Yeah, Bryce, if you committed a crime, would you steal a Camaro? Yeah, probably. <laughs> if I could steal any car, it would be that. I don't know. Maybe he was, he he knows he's going to get caught eventually. And maybe he just wants to keep up the status and the symbol of who he was, like him and that car kind of go together. Hard to know what's going on in the mind of a person like that. But out of all the cars he could have come across to steal, surely he was seeking that one out. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just thought that was so weird. By the time that police have Ted in custody. They have already been building a case against him for the Chi Omega attacks and the attacks on Cheryl Thomas. That's something that kind of makes me a little happy, though, that they were able to tie him to so many cases because we've done other serial killers in the past where, I mean, even with him, the cops think that there were more victims, but I mean, we did Israel Keys and cops think that there were like a lot more victims of what we even know about. And so it's kind of nice to be able to officially put a name to it and kind of give some sort of closure to families, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at this point, a lot of different entities are involved. The FBI is involved. A number of different states and city police departments are involved because he was so widespread in his attacks. He definitely bebopped around the whole U.S. I don't want to have this image of Ted Bundy bebopping around, whatever that means. It's just something I say that I felt like needed to be in here. And I apologize. <laughs> it's my favorite word that she says. <laughs> I guess I didn't even know. Do I say it a lot more than I realized? I don't think I've ever heard it, honestly. <laughs> but I'm imagining our two big serial killers, Israel Keys and Ted Bundy. <laughs> bebopping. Arms crossed and just bebopping across the country like they do. Anyway, but yeah, he, he moved around a lot. And he he didn't really have an area of comfort for lack of a better word you hear about a lot of serial killers who have their comfort area that they stick with he went everywhere and because of his escapes he was such a high profile serial killer that i think everybody really wanted to be involved and hold him accountable for these crimes 
It's crazy how his public perception kind of flip-flopped because in the beginning, what we talked about was a lot of the police officers were given evidence right in front of them, like, hey, this looks like him, this is his car, and they're like, nah. Now you have multiple states that are using any evidence they can find to get him, which is pretty cool. Well, something that is just absolutely insane about Ted Bundy, too, is that he was so charismatic that a lot of people did not believe that he committed these crimes because he maintained his innocence well through his trials. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that when our next episode comes out. Yeah, I was reading a book about him recently and today, actually, and it was talking about his mom was describing him and saying that she never had any signs that he was committing these horrible crimes at all. Like, there was not any tells for her. A lot of people in Ted Bundy's life really did believe his innocence, his mom, like you said, and including his girlfriend that I briefly mentioned earlier, which I will get more into in the next episode as well. But I do think it's very interesting that he was such a polarizing person. Stay tuned for our final episode about Ted Bundy, where we cover his trials and his psych eval. Yeah, and we hope you guys like the format that we've been doing with some of these bigger episodes, breaking it into multiple parts. It is something where we could put everything together, but for cases like O.J. Simpson, Ted Bundy, they would end up being, you know, anywhere upwards of an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, just based off the context. So we try to break it down into manageable sizes so you guys can listen to it a little more easily. We do want to give you another reminder about some of the merchandise we just got in. We have some Crime Over Coffee mugs left. We are building our website right now that's going to have a store but before that is live you can still order it from us directly through our email which is crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com so shoot us an email we'll ship you a coffee mug which is the same one that we use while we're recording our episodes and we're offering $15 with free shipping to anywhere in the continental US and thanks again for listening Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.